Hi, I'm Donovan. And I'm Matt. And this is... Blacklight the Spotlight. Welcome back to the show, everybody. Donovan, it's been five months since I sang. Can we tell? Yes, honey. Get it together. <laughs> I'm, you know me. And if you're a friend of mine listening to this, you know that I never have it together. <laughs> Correct. Accurate. Uh, my, my friends joke that I have like a memoir um, that is, well, it's got a few different titles to it. But one of them is like Matt's like hot mess cookbook and all the different ways that I make crazy, <laughs> crazy recipes and disaster. So anyway, uh, welcome back to the show, everybody. We are so excited to have you. If you are just turning in, uh, tuning in to us for the first time, feel free to go to that very first episode, which is who we are and why we are here, in which we did not talk so philosophically about life's questions of why we're here. Although, I don't know, should we Maybe do that? Maybe we should have. Yeah, I, I I pitched that to this family I'm babysitting for, and the woman thought straight up that, oh, that's a deep question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so, but more importantly, we of course did speak about uh, ourselves and the work we are trying to do, which is elevate the voices of underrepresented communities in the arts and educate those on a journey of allyship, whether you are white, cisgendered, straight, whatever the case may be. Right. And as something I mentioned in our first episode is the fact that Matt and I are by no means experts. So um, it feels especially exciting to bring in special guests and uh, have people who can speak even more to the experiences that we want to discuss. Today, we're going to talk about something that is very important, and it comes with the caveat of a Donovanism. One of my favorite phrases that you use is you, you text me and you say, I'm not doing this project for free 99. Okay. To be fair, people do not often ask me to do projects for free 99. I don't know if I've ever used it in that context towards you. I have. <laughs> I have the receipts of the texts. I will show you. We can do that as a bonus episode. A dramatic reading of all of our texts. I like that. No, for the love of God. <laughs> I don't know why I was talking about free 99. I, I think it was a, a project you had asked me, like, hey, should I do this? And we were talking about how good the compensation was, um, but that you're really passionate about it. Well, a lot of projects excite me, so I have to say yes. Okay. If they align with my mission as an artist, I will say yes. Touche. But for free 99, absolutely not. Fair. So all that being said, today's episode, episode two, is devoted to emotional labor compensation. I personally am so excited to talk about this. I don't think we're talking about it enough. And I am so excited to introduce y'all to our special guest today, Miss Amara Brady. So tell us who you are. What are your pronouns? How do you identify as an artist? And most importantly, why are you feeling yourself this week? Oh God, the last question. <laughs> uh, so hey everybody, my name is Amara Brady. Uh, I My pronouns are she, her, and hers. I'm calling in from the land of the Lenape, now known as Brooklyn, New York. I identify as a generative artist and a cultural dramaturg. Uh, and the reason I'm feeling myself this week is because I got two self tapes 
on a Wednesday night and one of them had nine pages of material and guess who banged it out before the 4 p.m. due time? Due time? Yes. What is the word for Deadline. There we go. Deadline <laughs> is the word I was looking for. Uh, so that's why I'm feeling myself this week, I think. Excellent. Thank you for that, Amara. So happy to have you here with us today. So I actually have a question about um, something that we just heard from you that maybe some of our listeners might not um, be too familiar with. And it's actually the immediate thing that struck me. Um, so the way how Amara and I know each other is I took one of her classes uh, in the Jen Waldman studio last month, two months ago, I believe at this point. Yeah, it's crazy. What is time in quarantine? Um, and in that class that I took, when Amara started it, she started it off with a land acknowledgement. And that was my first introduction to that. So I was hoping you could briefly just explain what that moment was and why did you choose to do that? Yeah, uh, I think being, you know, in America and in multiple places across the world, uh, we are living on stolen land built up by stolen people. And I think it's important to acknowledge that uh, because until until the land is restored to its original caretakers and the people who are still taking care of this land today and will likely take care of this land um, in the future, we're doing ourselves a disservice and we're not recognizing it. And we don't talk about the way um, reservations work in this country or the way they've previously worked or the way, uh, you know, land agreements have not been honored. Uh, I think a couple months ago, maybe one or two months ago, the Supreme Court or the, the court in Oklahoma finally restored um, some of the ancestral lands to the indigenous people there. But like that land agreement is older than you, than all three of us combined. And they have been disrespecting it for that long, even after we've already like decimated an entire community of people and taken all of this land already. And then pushed them into spaces and said, this is all you get now. And then to take those lands again is utterly ridiculous. Um, so I think that it's important to acknowledge it and to talk about it and to make sure that we're having conversations about it. I was on a panel recently and I suggested that they start with a land acknowledgement and I didn't realize how few people knew what they were until, you know, we asked people in the chats to do their own land acknowledgements. And it was just a bunch of like older white people saying, I acknowledge. And it was like, no, that's no. not, that's not how this works. And then you realize, <laughs> oh, I have to talk to you about like what this is, what it means and like how we utilize this moving forward. And so that's why I try to implement it in every space I go into. I try to start with that. This is the land that I'm calling in from. These are the people that I acknowledge as the caretakers of this land. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. As, as I said, um, it really, it struck me and you were um, the first person I had ever seen do that. And it actually inspired me. Um, something that I kind of touched on uh, in our last episode is the work I'm doing with ICTA BIPOC. Um, and this is actually connected to our conversation that we're going to have today. Um, so I went to school in upstate New York um, and it felt important in this letter that we wrote to our department, to the administration of Ithaca College, um, it felt important to do a land acknowledgement. And I think if I hadn't had that class with you, you know, that's never something that would have crossed my mind. Uh, that being said, it, deal it did feel important to me to do it the right way. 
So I contacted one of my indigenous friends on, you know, how to do a, as someone who had grown up on a reservation, I asked, how, help me, how do I do this properly? And of course I asked for their Venmo so I could pay them. And so that kind of connects back to what we want to talk about today is this idea of emotional labor and why it ought to be compensated. Um, So I think too often white people and particularly white liberal people um, ask BIPOC or underrepresented people to educate them, to do the work for them. And too often they ask us to do it for (laughs) no compensation. And I think what kind of inspired me to want to speak about this in um, on this episode is a couple of months ago in the wake of the George Floyd protests. I don't know about you, Amara, but I had a bunch of theaters, a bunch of, um, you know, people who were coming out of the woodworks asking for me to get involved in their mission. Um, and there was one particular ask that really had me feeling some kind of way because it was essentially this person who um, wanted me to join them for a cabaret that was raising money for quote unquote social justice. Um, you know, that vague definition, social justice. Uh, and it was an unpaid gig. And I was so shook that I was being asked to um, offer my services for free so that this theater organization could kind of unpack their own structural racism or like do the work. It, It just, it didn't make sense to me that this was happening. So I guess I'm curious, have you had any similar experience of someone reaching out to you, asking you to work for free so that they can better themselves? I mean, y'all, we we work in the American theater, so the fast answer is yes. Uh, but I think that I one I think that I surrounded myself with some really brilliant people who understood like my politic uh, before any of this happened. Um, I will say there have been instances where, like, I a lot of my day job prior to like quarantine or prior to this year was in arts administration. Um, and I definitely felt like there was a lot of time where um, I wasn't working in the EDI department, but I was expected mm-hmm. to do EDI work because I was yes. black. Um, yep. And I think that that's like across the board, especially in arts administration, mm-hmm. uh, where it's just like we hired a two for one and we don't increase your pay. And I was actually making less money than this particular institution. I was making less money than the EDI consultant in the same position in that department um but I was also liaising with the EDI department and my actual job (laughs) so Mm. it was very frustrating but that was kind of the last moment where I was like I don't want to do this anymore and um not to like celebrate white people or pat them on the back but you know (laughs) a lot of my friends were like thank you for the work that you've done in my life here's some money you don't have to do anything else which I was really grateful for Um, And there were even people, you know, we did the YouTube series back at the top of quarantine, and there were people who were sending me money for that, which I was really surprised by and very um, grateful for, because we don't tend to support or celebrate, um, especially Black fans, for doing communal work. And so I'm always concerned about that. Um, I'm always thinking about that. There's a the group that I asked you to uh, make the donation for and, like, send uh, out to your audience you know, 
she has a GoFundMe up right now for her own mental health fund. Um, and it's almost to the point that she wanted. And I'm so happy to see that because it's not normal. We don't normally take care of community organizers, especially when they look like Black women or Black trans people. Ooh, amen. Oh, I'm really glad that you uh, touched on this idea of mental health. That's, I mean, obviously in quarantine amidst everything that's going on, that's something that has been coming up a lot. And I guess uh, one question that I've been kind of grappling with is, um, you know, I, I think so many Black people right now, so many BIPOC artists are um, receiving more work um, or at least uh, being reached out to uh, for their work, for their services, whatever it may be. And I think there's this idea of imposter syndrome being really rampant <laughs> in our industry. And I guess I wonder if, um, you know, if someone is being is someone being employed based on the fact that they are black or are they being employed on the fact that they are a talented person who happens to be black? It, do, you, do you see the distinction I make there? I, I guess I just worry that um, there are black people right now who are experiencing work who might be struggling with this idea of imposter syndrome or feeling like they don't belong. Yeah. Um, I think that this is so, I was talking to my friend about this last night, um, because it's something that a lot of people are grappling with now. It's something that I personally grappled with, um, definitely like my undergraduate experience. Cause I went to a PWI, mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. and I got a lot of scholarships and I was like, it's because, is it because I'm black? Cause they're like not really mm -hmm. casting me. So it doesn't make sense for them to like actually have me here. Um, and I think that the, the consensus I came to within myself, like years ago was that like, it didn't matter how I got in the room if it was not through nefarious means on my own part, uh, it mattered with what I got to, what I did with the space. Meaning for me, um, if I got in the room by being underhanded or like doing something that does not line up with my moral code or my why, mm -hmm. that's a problem. If mm -hmm. I got into a room because a group of white people were like, we need a black person, <laughs> that's not my problem. And it's actually mm -hmm. none of my business. What I am going to do is fuck your shit up. What I am going <laughs> to do is take your resources. What I am going to do is redistribute those resources to my community. But if like, oh, yeah. that's but like you deciding to put me in a room because I'm black, that has nothing to do with me. That has everything mm -hmm. to do with you. And that's not my fault. And that's not my business. Ooh, yes. Thank you for that. Thank you for that. You mentioned um, your why. Mm -hmm. And that's a term that I've been introduced to pretty recently. Can you just talk to us a little bit more about what you mean by that? Yeah. I mean, Jim Wallman uh, works with Simon Sinek and it's all about like, how do you find your, your true North? Like the thing that drives you, the thing that relates to everything else you do, what is that thing? And then if you're not working with it, you're working against it. So if, so mm -hmm. my why, my personal why is like to uplift black women and like help us see the goddess within ourselves. That's literally my why. If I do anything that works against that why, then that's a problem. And I have to talk to myself about it. Absolutely. And so something else I've been trying to navigate is as we are asking arts organizations to hold themselves accountable to an anti-racist way of operating, uh, how can 
how, what work do we need to be doing to find out what their why is, what their focus is, what their mission is and how they are operating, especially if these are organizations that we are unfamiliar with? Uh, I mean, I think that you can only do your due diligence so much. Like I've done due diligence and still ended up working with really terrible people. Uh, so I think that we have to, as a community, talk to each other a little bit more. Cause like the specific instance I'm thinking about, there were people who didn't know me and we needed to know each other because this person had done some damage to this person. And they also ended up doing damage to me. And it's because I think that when we, I think that when people do things in the theater to us, uh, we don't see ourselves as valuable enough or deserving enough to uh, say, hey, this person hurt me. And in doing that, we do a disservice to ourselves, but we also do a disservice to our community members because we give them the ability to do it again. Um, and so I I think that like you, you always look at the mission statement, but you also look at the images of the last 10 years of their productions. You look at which directors they're hiring. You look at their administrative team. You look at all of those things and those things begin to create a clearer picture. So when I talk about being a cultural dramaturg, that's the work that I like to do. I like to look at people's mission statements as a script and then I find out where your plot holes are. Your plot holes look like you saying that you're dedicated to anti-racist work or you're dedicated to supporting black artists. But then I look back on the last 10 years and you had one, you know, very light skinned director (laughs) because Mm. that proximity to whiteness was the thing that was appealing to you. And it was accepting to your predominantly white subscription base. This is a problem. So you can either fix that problem or you can change your mission statement, but you can't keep the mission statement and not do the work. Mm. Hmm. Ooh, I love that. I uh, I recently sent an email to, I, I think I did some of my own cultural dramaturgy, Come so on. to speak. Um, I sent an email to an artistic director who had reached out to me asking, uh, just, uh, just asking me to submit. And I looked on their website because I was unfamiliar with this company and I saw this white ass board of directors, white ass mm-hmm. company. But then I went to their mission statement and saw all this language surrounding diversity and inclusivity. And it was astonishing to me. And so I literally, in my response, I said, please explain to me this exact quote in your mission statement, because I'm not seeing it. I'm not seeing you walk the walk. And it felt very liberating to yeah. do that. It's like, oh, I feel like a badass now. What did they say? They were so receptive in hearing it, actually. And um they gave me specific um, action items that they are taking to kind of recommit to an anti-racist way of operating within their company. So we'll see, we'll see. But I think opening up that conversation uh, was very important. And I feel like um, Donovan a year ago would have been too scared to do something like that, you know? Because yeah. as artists, we're told that we have to stick to the status quo. We can't be asking too many questions. We don't want to be seen as aggressive or difficult to work with. And now I'm like, you know what? Fuck it. I need to know, do you, will, do you fight for my existence to live? Do you fight for my existence to work and exist within your company? Mm-hmm. If not, no, I don't want to work with you. But yeah. I need an exact answer to those questions. 
I mean, I think we all have to be difficult. I think that that's what, like, the fact that people were scared is what has us where we are right now. People were scared. And that's, I'm not discrediting that. I'm not devaluing that. Um, But again, like, I've been talking about this a lot. We got to get to a place where, like, my morals and my integrity are more important than this job. Because, like, we were talking on a community call one day. And, you know, I've been calling for people to... um, basically start holding people accountable, even at the expense of their own jobs. And somebody was like, well, people are scared and they don't have job stability. And Mm -hmm. I was like, do you know who else didn't have job stability? Most of the marginalized people that you said you're fighting for. We have been trying to figure out how to make rent forever. Like we have done Mm -hmm. it outside of the purview of the American theater. So like, maybe you should also do the same for a while. When we talk about like, you know, disabled artists being able to make a living in the American theater, it feels impossible. And I'm not disabled. Do you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. Ali Stroker being the first person and also, like, still one of the only people in a wheelchair Mm -hmm. who has been on Broadway, I think she's still the only one. But it's just, like, that's utterly ridiculous for an industry that purports and totes itself to be, like, the bastion of, of inclusivity. That's right. stupid. Again, this is where our mission is not aligning with our actual values. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I'm curious. Do you, God, I just, I love hearing you talk. I, I just, I love it so much. Do you have any thoughts on, um, I guess, language that artists can engage in to kind of um, ask these organizations to hold themselves accountable to the work and to the kind of concrete action plans? I mean, work with uh, We See You White American Theater. Like, I have a lot of questions about the platform and about whether or not they're just asking for more diverse gatekeepers. Like, that bothers me, and I don't I don't know the answer to that question yet. Um, but I read their 31 pages of demands, so I'd, I'd start with them. Um, I'd also look to, there's like a cultural activation guide that I've been touting to everybody uh, for a while now. Uh, It's from the Center for Cultural Power and it's called No Going Back. Um, And I think that that's really useful. I think that community organizing is more where my mindset is because I don't, Mm. I don't have the answers for how we change institutions. I don't have the answers for how we hold, you know, the Broadway league accountable. I don't have the answers for how to get their board to be more diverse. And then by extension, you know, diversifying Broadway, but like, again, there are like 47 Broadway theaters and they're owned by three people and none of them are marginalized. <laughs> so like, I don't, I don't know how to change that. I got nothing. I got, right. I got nothing. I've, I have nothing but that knowledge and, you know, the mythology of, of, and the stories that I've heard about people who have tried to buy theaters in Midtown and failed miserably and been ostracized and blackballed. These are the only things I have. Um, so I, I don't know how to work within institutions and I, all I'm, cause I don't, there are institutions who are reaching out to people right now, which I find interesting. Those are institutions I think I can help, but I think that I've always been of the mindset that you can't help somebody who doesn't want to be helped. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You see a lot of, especially with the, we see white American theater, um, you know, they were like, the Broadway League had internal conversations for about five months. And instead of deciding to like talk about racism in the industry, specifically on their perspective, they decided to remount the Tony Awards. Um, and so it's just like, I can't help you if you don't want to be helped. There's nothing <laughs> I can do to make you want to do this work. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and we can try and hold them accountable and we can try and publicly shame people if we think that that's the best route, but publicly shaming people only goes so far when they're still receiving money. You know what I mean? Yeah. And it's hard because there's no ethical consumption in really stage capitalism. And that is not like that applies to theater as well. Mm -hmm. Amara, regarding that, do you think, and again, I'm not going to be naive here, you know, when we're talking about those, those big three uh, families organizations, do you think that for talking about people that want to change, do you think it is the producers that don't want to change or the predominantly older white audiences that they're catering to that don't want to change or both? Um, I think it's definitely a little bit of both. I think it would be naive of me to say it's one or the other. Um, I think that there are a lot of producers who are maybe not invested in the work that they're putting on Broadway, but they're hoping that like, I'm going to make it big with this one thing. And then I can do what I want the rest of the time, which is, is in some ways admirable in some ways not. Um, I think that I think that audiences are smarter than we give them credit for. I think that audiences are more open than we give them credit for. I remember, um, earlier in, in quarantine, you know, um, Roundabout put up, they put on, um, like, not YouTube, but they did a broadcast of, um, oh gosh, what's the name of the play? I can't remember the name of the play. But they did, it's it's about a family who's dealing with a couple of people who are deemed illegal immigrants, um, and half of their family are, like, citizens, and half of their family are not, and it's how they tackle this. And I went to like their talk back section and I was like deathly afraid because it was me and a bunch of older white people. And I was very stressed <laughs> out. I was like, I went into the space and I saw all of these faces and I was like, oh, this is how I die. This is it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I was pleasantly surprised by the perspective of the people in those rooms. And it was, it was both like a very um, sobering moment for me where I was like, maybe Maybe you need to, you know, adjust your mindset a little bit. But I've also seen some, you know, really terrible people too. So it's a very, uh, it's a, I think that audiences are ready for more than we give them credit for. But I also know that there are people in those audiences who, who are not ready for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so interesting. There's so many conversations that are happening. I mean, in my, in the Philly theater community right now, but I would argue in all regional theater communities about how do we get resistant uh, institutions to change when, yeah, when they don't want to change. And something, some I feel like something that has been coming up in the conversations is at the end of the day, it is connected to money. It feels like money is the bottom line. And how can we hold people accountable by kind of removing that, um, financial source or going to the donors, going to the audiences, whatever, whatever it may be. But I, it's just, yeah, it's such a power structure. And I feel like it's more than just the artistic directors who are kind of upholding the status quo. But I also want to say, like, I, I think that, like, I'm going to come back to this quote that I come back to a lot and I'm going to butcher it, though I should commit it to memory because I say it so much, but it's from Tony K. Bambara. And she basically talks about you know, the duty of an artist is always dependent upon the class on what you serve. And she says, you know, if you serve um, a bourgeois capitalist class, then you write to make that romantic, you write to make that beautiful and palatable, you write to celebrate that. Uh, but she says, like, as a, as a member of a marginalized people, I like, 
identify as a cultural worker and I write on behalf of that class of people. And then my job is to make the revolution irresistible. So like there are theaters whose mission is not to make the revolution irresistible. <laughs> there are theaters <laughs> who will never make that their life's work. And no. <laughs> I, I don't know where they fit into, you know, the ideas about theater moving forward. I think that we have been um, simultaneously blessed and um, maybe a little bit spoiled by the way theater movements have previously worked in, in America and the ones that we have given credit to and credits to. Like when you think about Joseph Papp creating the public theater um, in contention with Lincoln Center, right? Like to me, in my mind, Joseph Papp wins every day of the week. And like Lincoln Center is still a bastion of, of a lot of uh, older white money and they mm -hmm. will remain as such because that's what they want to do. They serve the bourgeois capitalist class. And I can't fight Lincoln Center to make them change their mission into something that's completely different. It would right. be stupid of me to try. That's their business. I can decide that maybe I don't want to work with them. I can make that decision. Mm -hmm. I, I will say that like, I think that, and that's not to say that the whole of that institution is flawed. Maybe it is, I don't know. But I will say that there are people who are working in that institution who I think are trying to dismantle that belief that they work and serve bourgeois capitalist class. I don't know how well they succeed, but they are trying. And, and again, that's like the work of some people's work. The work of some people's work is to go into these institutions and try and upend everything. Again, how do I get you to give resources to my community, to the people who I think are most deserving? Yeah, I love, I love that conversation. I have one more question for you before we move to uh, Matt has a couple of questions from the listeners, but my final question is um, whether you have any insight or um, any recommendations for BIPOC artists who are having to choose currently, whether they want to add to their own emotional burden by working for an institution that, you know, is attempting to correct its lack of diversity. Um, but if they choose to work for this institution, it will certainly be tokenizing as they'll be one of the only BIPOC artists there. Do you, that was a very long question, <laughs> but yeah. Do you have any insight on that? Yeah. I mean, uh, set your rate. If they can't mm -hmm. meet your rate, then you have to ask yourself some internal questions. But that, that was like a thing that my therapist suggested to me when a lot of things started popping up. She said, you know, I want you to set your rate. And if they can't meet your rate, is it worth your time? Um, and that was really helpful to me. It was really helpful. And I was like, oh, this is the rate that I would like to charge for an hour of my time. Mm -hmm. And whenever anybody asked me to do anything, I would say, oh, here's what I would do. Here's also my rate that I would charge you. Um, and so far, nobody has like, been like, I can't pay you that. Or somebody has come, like there was one instance, there was one instance where uh, someone approached me asking me to lead a facilitation for them and they made an offer to me before I could give them my rate. Um, and it was a group that I was already in community with and I really believe in the work that they were doing. So I was like, yeah, I'll do this for you. But on the whole, make your rate and decide whether or not it's worth it. Cause like I'm starting to look at like emotional labor is one thing, uh, but I, I don't have I'm cutting my emotional ties to organizations and investing emotional ties in people. Um, and that's something that's very personal. And it's something that's been happening, you know, especially in the last like three months, there's an institution that I started at as an intern 
uh, they were paying me like $25 a day. And, you know, there was something, there was an opportunity that I really wanted uh, that I ended up not getting from that institution. And I mm. had dedicated and like signed and like tied my soul to them in a way that was Ooh. very unhelpful to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, you know, that felt like the last straw where I was like, this is the fourth rejection I've gotten from this institution. I know all of these people. I have like dedicated my time and like my blood and my sweat and my tears to this place. Mm-hmm. And I, I shouldn't have done that. That's my fault. And and they could have treated me better and that's their fault. Um, and so I think that like, that's my new commentary. It's like, I don't need this for prestige anymore. I've, I've built up enough prestige in my mind, right? I've built mm-hmm. up what I consider a, a valuable and a, a celebrated career for me in some ways. I've built up enough. Hell yeah. I've done enough reading for free. You know, I, I read <laughs> a lot. Of, I read a lot of plays for the first three years. Like I've only been in New York for years. And so uh, I, I was really hungry. You, you start this thing off hungry. And I think that like, you know, I was, I was reading upwards of 150 plays a year. Wow. And oh, uh, that used to be me. I'm jealous. You not. Know. Do you know why you not? Because there are a lot of bad plays. Most of them <laughs> are racist. I was yes. reading for institutions that charge like $30 fees and then don't pay us. Mm. Or I was reading for institutions that were giving me like $10 a play which is less than minimum wage not and it doesn't even include like the time that i was taking to give these very thorough reports and i was like i could just not do this i could actually just not do this Uh (laughs) so i think that i'm encouraging everybody to start divesting from organizations and start investing in your people those are the people Mm. that you want to find those are the people that you want to see like there are artists who i love to work with those are the people who i invest my emotional labor in so yep. there are playwrights whose plays I will read and gladly have conversations with, playwrights whose like pilots I will read and gladly have conversations with, but I don't want to read for institutions anymore unless they're paying me what my going rate is for my hour. I want that as a, a bumper sticker, divesting in organizations, investing in people. Is that is that the effect of what you said? Yeah. Oh, so good. I will say one of the more one of the most useful phrases I've been using over the past couple of months is I don't have the space for this right now. And I think that's something that we need to normalize. Yes, Donovan, please do tell us how you have done a good job at saying no to a million different projects. Here's the thing, Matthew, I see that you're, or excuse me, I hear that you are coming for me and I rebuke it. I do take on lots of projects. My self-care does involve being busy. But that being said, all the projects I take on are things that are in alignment with my mission as a human. So I feel okay with that. Is that okay with you? Always, but one of your projects should be finding me a boyfriend or a cuddle buddy for cuffing season slash quarantine. You... are heinous. I am. My favorite thing is when you call me a gremlin. It makes me feel great. <laughs> As y'all will come to find, I have, I could write an entire dictionary, I think, of Donovanisms, and I'm sure uh, Matt will use them plenty of times in the podcast. <laughs> but on that note, as artists, we're told, or we believe that we have to say yes to everything, that it serves us, that it'll lead to 
you know, a future amazing career trajectory. Uh, and <laughs> right. Do you right. know what won't pay my bills? Your exposure. <laughs> Leave me alone. Correct. Oh my God. We all serve the God of capitalism and I need you to pay my bills. <laughs> The same way you got exactly. bills to pay, I got bills to pay. It's also ridiculous to like pay, like I really want us to have some deep conversations about about um, artistic directors making six figure salaries. Oh dear <laughs> God! I'm disturbed. Me both. Um, but also, like I want to have some really tough conversations with Actors Equity about the fact that like Mary McCall is making three hundred thousand dollars a year, which is Oof. three times the like highest salary of of our, most of our members. Right. Right. That's kind of ridiculous. And people don't want to have those conversations. And I don't mean to call people sheeple, but people are acting like sheep sometimes. And it's like, <laughs> like to, I joined the union back in November and it was a wild time, I think for me. And I was just like, when I got there, I was like, oh, oh, this is, oh, this is not great. And you know, somebody great. posted, why is Mary McCall making $300,000 a year? And everybody's like, that's the going rate of a union leader. And why are we having this conversation? And this is a stupid conversation. I'm like, Y'all don't want to talk about where your money goes? Correct. That's a, that's a stupid conversation. <laughs> the fact that you don't want to talk about where your money goes is actually quite ridiculous. And like, mm-hmm. we need to have conversations about the way we're paying union leaders. We need to have these conversations because if we don't, then nothing ever fucking changes. And now everybody's pissed about, you know, the way the union has um, adjusted healthcare rates. And it's like, do you realize how cyclical this conversation is that you don't mm-hmm, want to have? Mm-hmm. Because the people who are representing you are the people who are still making $300,000 a year. Right. So leverage the income that you're giving these people so that they actually act on your behalf. You know, somebody was telling somebody told me something very horrific and I won't share the details of the story, but I will share this. Um, they went to equity looking for support and equity was like, we, the person who the representative they were talking to was like, we work on behalf of the producers which is fucking ridiculous. Excuse me, it is utterly ridiculous. The fact that we have people who believe that, what are we doing with the actors union then? This is a union for producers. This is stupid. Right. And so I'm just like, I can't, like, I'm already like, I've been in the union for less than a year and I'm like, so we leaving or we starting a new union? (laughs) Are we creating a division in the freelancers union? Because it's utterly ridiculous. We need a union, but we need a union that is going to support us. I don't want to pay dues to an institution that could give two shits about me. Right. And that's what it feels like, you know? And we were on one of the calls because one of the JWSers started a group called um, Motivated Movers, I think is the name of it. And we were all having conversations and, you know, one of the equity people reached out to me because there was an equity rep when we had this conversation. It's just like, y'all can't answer me about nothing. And you like, I really don't want to hear your answers because I see the results. So like, there's nothing that you could tell me to change my mind. There's Mm -hmm. no conversation that we could have to make me go, oh, that makes sense in my head. Because it doesn't. It simply doesn't. (laughs) Um, When we talk about, you know, I even looking at things like the, they do a connective thing with the Commercial Theater Institute, uh, Equity does. And I went to it and I was there and I was like, y'all just don't, like the way you can teach people producing is by giving them access to your funding sources. Mm. That's actually mm. really, unless you're starting with that, everything else seems pretty useless at this point. When it takes a quarter of a million dollars to mount a show on Broadway, the only thing you can tell me is who you're producing, who, who investing your stuff. Tell me that. 
Connect me to right. those people. That's all you can really tell me because I can learn how to make a budget. I can actually stretch a dollar pretty well. I can learn how to work with casting people. I can figure out general management stuff. All of those things are like skills that I have learned in other positions that I would happily be able to do. But it's just like, if you ain't going to tell me how, how to get a quarter of a million dollars, we don't have a conversation. And you can say you want to support producers and like producers from marginalized experiences, but until you give them your resources, guess what's not going to happen. <laughs> true. True. Thank you for that. I, Matt and I are, um, we're not in the union, but I'm so excited to continue on a future episode talking about who the differences between being a union actor and a non-union actor and how the system just hurts us all. It really um, does. But on it that, really does. I know. It's a mess. Uh, but on that note, Matt, do you want to pose a couple of questions that our listeners asked? So yeah, so we did get a few questions. Uh, how does a BIPOC individual advocate for themselves in terms of asking for compensation for emotional labor? Uh, it takes practice, but you kind of just have to do it. I said it a little bit earlier in the show. What I've begun to do is I uh, say, yes, I can do this thing. Here's my hourly rate. And then I normally let those people, you know, handle it from there. Because again, like you can't make somebody change if they don't want to. Um, and I have no interest in forcing people's hands. I'm tired. I ain't got to force you to do nothing. I could just not do the work for you. Um, I think that it starts with that. Again, set your rate. And then when people ask you to do work, that's my rate. That's what I do. This is how it works. You pay for you pay everybody else. You don't you don't you know nickel and dime your landlord. Maybe in a pandemic you do, but normally you don't. So like, don't nickel and dime me, and don't try and get me to change my rate for you, mm. unless we're like I don't. But unless you're in community with somebody, most times I think if you're in the right community, they won't ask you to change your rate for them. Like I was, a friend helped me with something the other day and I was like, I would like to pay you for your time because she, she like helps me for like two hours straight. And she's like, no, no, you don't have to pay me. And I was like, no, I'm going to pay you for your time. What would you like your, what would you like me to pay you? And she was like, oh, you can just send me $20, $10 for each hour. And I was like, that's no, no. And so I sent her like more than what she asked for. But like most of us don't do that. I don't know that we do that. And I think we should do that more. Wonderful. Thank you for that, Amara. Our second question is, what would, let's say there are theaters that, you know, as we discussed, do want to be more, not just diverse, but inclusive. And what would make you as a black artist, as a BIPOC artist, the most comfortable if they were to ask you for that, where you don't feel tokenized? Um, I think the thing that we've been talking about a lot is that, um, marginalized people shouldn't be the only marginalized person in the room but they also shouldn't be the only person of their lived experience in the room so i personally never want to curate a room where there's only one trans person or there's only one disabled person or there's only you know one native person or one anybody um and that's for a number of reasons it's one to dispel the idea that uh, marginalized people exist as a monolith but it's also because uh bringing challenging opinions and maybe differing views into the room is useful. It is successful and it can only make our work better. Um, and I think that, that that should be your goal regardless of your why. Making your work better should be your goal. Um, and so that's like, that's my hope. 
that theaters start saying, oh, I don't have to have a token person. I could actually have, you know, a plethora of people. I could have a group of 25 people. I could have all of these people, you know, a life outside of affirmative action that still includes marginalized people sounds really dope to me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for that. I think the final thing I wanted to leave our listeners with anyone who's tuning in is uh, a lot of what we've been talking about is proper compensation for professional services that are being offered. However, the conversation goes so much beyond that and kind of Amara, what you were talking about with your friend who lent her services and then you Venmoed her, it, it has to be part of that too. So if ever, you know, if ever you're having um, a BIPOC person or an underrepresented artist offer their emotional labor and educate you on how and why you need to do better. If ever they're educating you because you didn't take the initiative to educate yourself, you need to pay them for that education you, they are giving to you. Okay. So ask for their Venmo, ask for their PayPal, rip out your checkbook, whatever it may be, but you need to compensate them for that work. Period. 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 Poo. Okay. I'm done. (laughs) Speaking of the Venmo, we actually would love to uh, contribute to a charity that Amara is very passionate about. Tell us a little bit about Black Women Exhale. Yeah, so I, again, uh, divesting from organizations and investing in people, uh, I've been uplifting a couple of mutual aid groups, and Black Women Exhale is one of those mutual aid groups. Uh, The founder, Catherine raises a lot of funds for people who are, you know, facing housing um, insecurity, who are also dealing with mental health issues, and she uplifts them on this particular platform. Um, it, it is really a very loving space, and that makes me very happy. Folks, you can follow them on Instagram at Black Women Exhale, all one word, all lowercase, and women is spelled W O M. XN Black Women Exhale. Thank you so much, Amara. We are all going home, all the more better for having spoken to you today. And we do kind of creepily worship the ground you walk on. Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Amara, thank you so much for your time and for your insight and your knowledge. I feel like whenever I'm around you, you just drop so much knowledge on me and I fill all my notebooks with all the information you give. And I'm just so thankful. Thank you so much for saying that. Yes, thank you again for being here with us today. That's very kind of y'all. Thank you so much for having me.